Fredology is now presented by Sardine, and I couldn't be more excited. You'll get to meet their founder, Soups, and some of the team later this quarter, and you'll hear a bit more about why they've caught the attention of some of the smartest fraud leaders I know throughout crypto, fintech, financial services, and e-commerce. Thanks again to Sardine for supporting this episode of Fraudology. I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to the Fraudology Podcast, where every week we will dive into the science and study of online fraud from the perspective of a veteran fraud fighter. I'm Carice Hendrick. I've focused my life and career on online fraud prevention for over 15 years, working with hundreds of the most well-known e-commerce companies to help them prevent payment fraud and abuse. Welcome to this week's episode. As always, I am so glad you're here. When I launched this podcast a few months ago, I did it with a couple of goals. Primarily, the first one was just to share information that I pick up along the way. I am so grateful to get to talk to so many e-commerce merchants, as well as other companies in the ecosystem, and kind of have this 10,000 foot view. And so while I see myself as the hub of the wheel, I really want to create more avenues where I can get that information out through the spokes, so to speak. And this is one of those ways. And I hope and am planning on creating a few others as well. In addition to my own information and sharing education with you guys, I also really wanted to introduce you to some great fraud fighters. Some of them have been in e-commerce fraud, which is you know really where I spend the majority of my time and my focus. But there is a world of fraud out there for better and for worse. Uh, but that also means that there's a world of fraud fighters. And one of the people that I definitely wanted to have on this podcast was Frank McKenna. If you are not reading his blog, Frank on Fraud, I highly recommend that you do so. And he's also active on LinkedIn. And we've just really developed a friendship via private messages and comments on each other's posts and LinkedIn, but we'd actually hadn't ever talked via Zoom or on the phone. I mean, we've known each other for several years now. So this really was a great opportunity to be able to meet Frank face to face in the 2021 way of Zoom and really to understand the man behind the blog and also more about what he does in his full-time job, which he co-founded a really interesting company called Point Predictive, which he will share more information about in this interview. And I really think that there's a lot of little nuggets and takeaways of information from Frank's career journey, as well as his observations of fraud on more of a global scale. So with that, I'm going to let you listen to our conversation. And I look forward to talking to you again next week. I am so excited to have Frank McKenna here, the man, the myth, the legend. Frank is the author of the Frank on Fraud blog that I think a lot of us read. And if not, you should definitely check it out. And also the co-founder of Point Predictive. Frank, welcome to Fraudology. I'm so glad that you're here. Thank you, Grace. I've been looking forward to this for a long time. I follow the podcast and everything you do. So thanks so much for having me. Oh, well, thank you. Likewise, I'm a big fan of yours as well. It's actually really funny. We were just talking before we were recording that 
it feels like we know each other, but this is actually the first time we've ever right. talked. I shouldn't say face to face, but via Zoom, yeah. <laughs> which is yeah, the new face to face. That's right. Yeah. I want to just dive in and help listeners learn from you and your journey in fraud. I think that's something that a lot of people like to learn because there really is no blueprint. So we all follow our passions. How did you get started in fraud prevention? Yeah, it's interesting. So if I think back to when I got started, it was actually now 30 years ago. This is my 30th anniversary in fraud. It was 1990. And actually, my worst job led to my best job ever. (laughs) It's an interesting story. But 1990, I was unemployed. I was looking for work. I was applying everywhere I could. And I finally got a job for a small bank. It was called First Deposit. It was a brand new credit card bank. And they hired me to be a customer service rep, which was answering phones. They gave me a shift from 5 a.m. in the morning to 1 p.m. That was the shift I started at in the call center. I think that's like how they weed people out, maybe. They wean you out. (laughs) they, They almost weaned me out. So it was $8 an hour. It was a horrible job. And I I just hated going to work every day. Mm. One day I got this call. It was a man who was disguising his voice to sound like an old lady. He was pretending to be an old lady. And so I said, let me pull up your account number. And it was an account for a lady, Gertrude Higginbottom or something. And she was like 95 years old. Mm. And she was requesting apparently to add her son and uh, her grandson. So what it was to me when I heard it, I was like, this guy is trying to pretend like he's a grandma to add himself on the credit card account to get a credit card sent to him. So I stood up at the time when every anytime you had something you didn't know what to do, you stand up. You probably remember this, right? Stand up. The supervisor comes over and she (laughs) says, I say, I just don't know what to do with this. I think this guy is a fraud. And she says, Oh, you should transfer to the fraud department. And I was like, fraud department. Now <laughs> you are talking my language. I was like, really? There's a fraud department? I said, okay. And so she gave me the extension. I called up and I talked to a lady. Her name was Tess Ramos Cruz. She's actually somebody that I'm still in contact with, but I transferred the call to her and that was just like a big thrill for me. Yeah, and then yeah. the next day I got another call and the same thing. I was like, oh man, I'm going to transfer this to Tess. And so over the course of about a month or so, I started to think everything was fraud. So yep. I started to pepper tests. With, <laughs> with it feels like you're telling call. my story from yeah. 15 years ago. It's so funny. It's almost yeah. identical. Yeah, <laughs> Mine was Malcolm, but still. Oh, Malcolm. Yeah, <laughs> Tess Cruz. I'm going to tell her to listen to this podcast, by the way. <laughs> As um, you should. Big shout out. And then one day I was talking to her. She says, hey, you should apply for a job. We just posted your job in fraud. And I was like. I couldn't believe it. I was like, I'm going to do anything to get this job. And so Mm. I posted for it. I went to interview for it. I told the hiring manager I'll work for free for six months. If I don't work out, she doesn't have to pay me at all. I just wanted this (laughs) job. And so I I got that job and Tess ended up training me. It was just this gravitation from a really horrible job answering phones Mm. to actually starting to help find fraud. And so... That was my progression. It was just pure luck. And I'd never looked back. That was 30 years ago. Wow. Almost exactly. That's incredible. And I think that's so common for people, especially in the US and Europe. And there's a few places like Israel's, the first one that comes to my mind, where 
they have mandatory military time that they need to be engaged in that. And so a lot of them get trained by the military. But for the most part, a lot of us fall into it. But I think that I know it's a cheesy phrase, but I've often said that a lot of us fell into this by accident, but we stay on purpose. Oh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah, and it's think- kind of cheesy, but it feels it's an observation just of people I know. Once you get the bug and not everyone who goes into fraud gets the bug. But once you got it, you found your career. Right. I always say there's two types of people in the world. There's people that love fraud. <laughs> and you know them when you see them. Yep. There's people that could care less. And <laughs> it's a switch. You either love fraud or you. it's just like anything else. And so... I always know when I'm interviewing somebody, if I know they love fraud, I know they're going to be good Yeah, because they're just going to love their job. 100%. And sometimes you do need to have tenacity and curiosity and you need to love your job because not every day is sunshine and rainbows. (laughs) Mm, Not at all. Especially in fraud. Especially in fraud. Yeah, yeah. You can sometimes lose your faith in humanity if you're not careful, which... And yourself uh, too, yeah. Yeah. A lot of self-doubt and... You know, or do I mind the right track? And yeah, all those things. Yeah, yeah. I think it's common in lots of industries, probably, but I only know this one. And you're absolutely right. That is common as well. So you've been in this space for 30 years now and I've mm. seen a lot of changes and evolutions, both yep. in fraudster tactics mm. and fraud prevention technology and resources. Can you kind of share a little bit about this evolution and how it's been a part of your career path and really how it's helped where you are now? Yeah. So for me is like you, when I got into fraud, when I got that job and I got got to sit in the fraud department, I made a very deliberate choice to stay in fraud. No matter what it took, I was going to stay in fraud. I wanted to be a specialist at it. What I did at, you know, Providian, that was the bank at the Mm. time. I started off as a fraud analyst answering phones and a job came open in investigations. That was like a step up where you're actually investigating fraud now and known instances, calling victims, calling fraudsters, negotiating settlements. And so that was a step up. Negotiating yeah. settlements for what? Like with fraudsters or no? Yeah. Oh. yeah, you. Yeah. So banks at this time, this is the Wild West, right? And remember that 90s, there was no rule book on credit card fraud. Credit card fraud was just emerging because right. banks were starting to send lots of cards. And your job was to get a fraud case. And I would get like 10 or 15 a day. And you go through the case and you call the customer. See if it's a real fraud or not. So you challenge the customer a bit and make sure because about 40% of the cases that you get presented with, the customer either did the transactions themselves or it was their son or their daughter or somebody got in their house and they knew who it was. So we call that friendly fraud challenge. So we would do that. But then this remaining 60%, you're out there calling phone numbers that somebody dialed into the bank, let's say right before the fraud occurred and you just dial the number you see who answers. And if you talk into a fraudster or you try to find who did it, and then you try to get the money back from them. So that's what we wow. Yeah. So it would just be, you're trying to get them to pay off because the bank literally is not in the business of trying to arrest people. It's trying to get the money back. So right. my primary job was get the money back. If you can't get the money back, then you go to the police and you file the SARS. You still file the SAR regardless, by the way, but All that trying to get the money back was my main job. But in the process, it was just thousands and thousands of people interviewing victims and then talking to fraudsters and really getting in their heads and figuring it out. And that was really influential to me to go from an analyst to an investigator because you really start to dig deep into the law enforcement aspect 
into the psychology. In fraud, I've always seen that person's job that I want. And so when I was an investigator, I was like, there was another guy, Ofer Yitzaki, somebody else who was real key in my fraud career. And he was the rule writer. He would get to go in the system and write all the fraud rules. And I was like, I really want his job. And so he got to mentor me and I became like a junior rule writer. And I took that job. And that was all about figuring how do you do the proactive prevention. From there, I saw there was a job at a big bank, Wells Fargo. And that was my leap into like big bank world. Wells Fargo was like number two or three bank at the time. And yeah, I got to work there. And so I got to work in a big bank, writing all their debit and credit card strategies. And that was a ton of fun. But it also taught me how to work in a big company. And then from there, and you saw this, right? When you work for a bank, you can make the leap over to the vendor side. And I actually, at the time, made the leap to agency software. And if you've ever heard of Falcon which is what about 90% of credit card issuers use. Yeah. They were hiring. Again, this is one of those things like I saw the title and I was like, that's my job. (laughs) And it was fraud consultant. Mm. And I was like, fraud consultant sounds like what I want. Yeah. That's where I met Marianne Miller, who's now my friend for 20 years. And for about 10 years, Marianne and I would just basically travel around the world. We went to Australia, Japan, UK, Canada, Brazil, Mexico, all over the world, consulting with banks. Amazing. On behalf of... Falcon. Yeah. Just working with banks. You'd have one bank that was had really high fraud that was using our product. And then you'd have another one that was really low fraud. And it was like, why does one bank have low fraud Mm. and the other high fraud? Is because they're doing things the others isn't. So we would just tell them best practices. I got a chance to meet your consultant. You're talking to executives and you're talking to fraud analysts and you're talking to entry-level temp employees and you really have to be able to learn how to communicate. But what was really great to go to the vendor side was just that broad view into what lots of banks are doing. On the flip side, you don't control anything. Like as a consultant, you're just influencing. Yeah. So you can never do anything on your own. And that was probably the downside of it. But all the Yeah, things- not everyone takes your advice yeah. even when they pay for it. <laughs> yeah. They don't or Or they don't know how to like do the thing or they put it off or reprioritize. Or on the flip side, if I find a lot of times I will say stuff or things or recommendations that a fraud analyst is making to the executive and they'll listen to me, but they won't listen to the fraud analyst who works for them. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I always make a point of saying, hey, this is a recommendation I'm making, but guess what? You know, I do the exact same thing. Yeah. Yep. Mm-hmm. So um, important. Sometimes it's just the executives want to hear from a consultant or someone that has a lot of wins behind mm-hmm. them. But I'll say, actually, this is something that your fraud manager, your director is also suggested. Yeah. And I don't like that it has to happen, but whatever it takes to lift them up and do what's right, especially in proactive fraud prevention. That's right. I always say like fraud manager is... is experience and Mm. 50% is communication because fighting fraudsters externally is the easy part. Convincing your own organization to let (laughs) you do it is the harder part. I just had a very long conversation with a pretty good sized merchant today about this exact topic. (laughs) Yeah. So this is the hard part is how do you do the right thing? It's very hard to convince people. And that's where I think as fraud analysts, fraud managers is that day in and day out tenacity to believe in yourself, Mm. believe that you are making the right recommendations. Don't quit. People are not listening to you. Just keep raising it. 
because someone will eventually listen to you and you have a lot of responsibility to the bank, to the consumers, the victims, to just keep charging ahead. You may not have the biggest voice in the bank, but you can have a loud voice. And I think that's why fraud analysts and you know, fraud managers are so important. Yeah, you're preaching to the choir, but I so agree with you on that. So switching gears a tiny bit, when did you start writing the Frank on Fraud blog? Yeah, I wrote that. I started writing that in 2016 and it was gone. I was writing white papers for some big corporations mm-hmm. and they asked me to write a white paper and I'd write the white paper and it would go through like iteration after iteration. Everybody keep passing it around and wordsmithing it and then come mm-hmm. back to me and it was four months later and I was like, hey, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to prove to myself that I, just me, can just put up a website and just start writing mm-hmm. and writing in normal language and not in very flowery language. Right. Like, Synergies and this sort of multi-layered broadcast. <laughs> I wanted to speak like normal people. A person. A yeah. person. Get rid of the corporate speaking, just write about fraud mm-hmm. and connect with people. And I started writing. And little by little, I was like, wow, people aren't calling me Frank McKenna anymore. They're calling me <laughs> Frank on fraud. <laughs> and I'm going into meetings and people are saying, you're Frank on fraud. It was awesome. It was like, you know what? I proved that companies could just start writing their white papers and don't worry about it being perfect and not try to make it down the middle. Just talk to your audience. It can probably do so much more. I actually really agree. I've written several white papers myself in my career and knowing the audience the way I do, especially in e-commerce, but I think banking is the same way. Half the time they're like, I don't even understand this. Just tell me what this means for my job and how to do my job better. Just simplify it. But I think that on the vendor side, there's such a disconnect sometimes. It's almost like they've read the owner's manual, but they've never actually driven a specific car. So they don't know when to step on the brake at a red light or how hard to step on the gas, et cetera, or how the windshield wipers work or whatever. And people who are practitioners of fraud in the banking side or e-commerce or you know anywhere else, we're driving the car. So there's such a disconnect sometimes. And sometimes I'm brought in to kind yeah. of get the gap there. But yeah, I think. Sense. Yeah, yeah. Because I just feel like I think that's just a systemic issue. I have been following it since the beginning. In fact, I have always wanted to do a blog. But I think consistency and brevity are two things that I <laughs> that are challenging oh. for me. So podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think it, and it works for you, too. But you could do a blog, too. Yeah. The great thing about a blog is it tends to show up in Google. Yeah. People will find your stuff sometimes easier with Google searches and things like that. So, yeah, right. And I love just how you write stories about all different types of fraud. I'm so mono focused on e commerce, though I have worked with at least one government formally on their unemployment fraud and have advised a few others. So I'm familiar with those. But what kinds of things have you learned while writing the blog? And is there any favorite story or two that just really sticks with you when you think about something that you really learned or that everybody really reacted to? Yeah. So what have I learned? I learned articles about industry events, news events, and then like operational stuff that just come up in my mind. Hey, you should do this. And I think the one article that I wrote, which I ended up actually taking down, but I learned a lot with it. It was about a company. I'm not even going to name the company because I don't want to, but it's a fraud company. They are going to be eventually probably prosecuted for it, but it was around credit privacy numbers. And Hmm. this whole cottage industry that's risen through 
use of what they call legalized CPNs, which is credit privacy numbers, mm. which is basically a fancy term for stolen social security number. That's so actually, what I was kind of thinking, yeah. isn't a credit number? Yeah, social. Yeah. yeah. And the, the, it demonstrates like when you write a blog, you really have to research and figure it out because I heard credit privacy number all the time. And I was like, wow, this must be a legal thing. And then the government must issue these credit privacy numbers. And through my research, I I found that it's just a big smokescreen fraud. And so I found this company who's the number one provider of CPNs out there. And I bought one. And in the process of buying one, I ended up getting a stolen social security number from this company that I never used, but I ended up getting the stolen social security number. And then I ended up getting peppered with all these emails about how to use it. They wanted me to buy trade lines, which is basically you can buy access to somebody else's credit temporarily and improves your credit score. And they did that. I ended up speaking to a reporter. I gave him the name of this company. The uh, reporter ended up doing kind of an expose on it and found (laughs) everything I'd found. Yeah. Victims of this company. And for me, it was just the educational piece, not only for me, but the educational piece for just everyday consumers. There are thousands of consumers every single day that are falling for scams like this or falling for these traps. And by writing these blogs, sometimes maybe when they're Google searching CPN, actually, mm-hmm. if you would Google search before I took it down, because I didn't yeah. want to get sued, you would Google search CPN. The first article that would pop up was my article <laughs> on CPNs. It says they're fraud. Yeah. And so a lot of consumers were probably reading that and it was warning them. But yeah, I think that aspect of it is, to me, is the most rewarding. It's just educating people about fraud. Yeah, it's definitely, I always enjoy it. And sometimes I'm like, how did he get this? But I know a lot of it's public information. You just boil it down in such an easy digest way. Yeah, sometimes there's four articles that are written on the same thing. Mm-hmm. One news company reports something and then, and they can't do this anyway. They can't go to another news organization, see what they wrote about it. Sometimes by going to five sources, you can create a better story and more complete story of the fraud because you see the different pieces. So right. sometimes hmm. going out and researching things, you get like a broader view and a unique view into it. Yeah. So switching gears a tiny bit, but it still has to do with the block a little bit because you've been writing a lot about how much fraud has changed in the last 12 months, especially as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic, whether it's the economic issues that are, you know, with it or the fact that people are at home and what types of changes or developments do you think have been the most catastrophic? Yeah. I think you and I probably have similar feelings about it and just kind of what have you observed during this time? I think we're at the apex of fraud of all time. I think 2020 was the absolute apex that we've ever seen. And it was a perfect storm. And when you Mm -hmm. talk about a perfect storm, that means everything comes together at once. And everything did come together at once. You had people that were out of work. You had people that were lonely, people that were isolated. They became more likely to be victimized. And then you had mountains and mountains of money that the governments were throwing out there across the world. $10 trillion was launched out there globally to help victims of fraud, to help victims of the pandemic, I should say, or your lockdown. So you had the Paycheck Protection Loan Program here in the U.S., and that was $700 in loan money. You had the EIDL, Economic Injury Mm -hmm. Disaster Loan Program. That was another $200 You had unemployment, pandemic unemployment assistance, and that was another, I don't even know what that was. That was probably another $100 there as well. So you got mountains of money. And there's never been that much money that's been given away by governments globally. 
So that created a lot of opportunity. Then you had not only mountains of money, but it was like, hey, we need to get this money out in the next 15 days. So you got all this money and then you say, turn off fraud controls, turn off any any sort of structure you have in fraud, just get this money into the hands of the people. Mm -hmm. And so you've got this super opportunity once in a lifetime for fraudsters to go in and just take advantage of the loose fraud, loose non-existent fraud controls. And fast money equals fast fraud. And that's exactly what happened. You had Mm. fast money going out in 15 days. The SBA usually loans, I think it's 26 billion a year or something like that in 12 months. They had 60 days to loan 600 billion. So you imagine taking that agency who's, it's about 30 times their average yearly work and saying, now I want you to loan 30 times that, but I don't want you to do it in 12 months. I want you to do it in two months. And they're all working from home and they're understaffed. And yeah, yeah, it's unfortunate. I had a colleague or someone that sometimes I subcontract through my consultancy, reach out to them and really try to plead with them. This is really bad. This is like when it was happening. Yeah. And a lawyer contacted him and said, what are you saying about us having fraud? And he was like, I'm just looking at, you know, Telegram private groups like this is happening. And they got really upset at him and said, how dare you, you know, accuse us of doing fraud and they wouldn't you know, admit it. And he was like, I just, yeah, he said, I just want to help. So there's some of that too, like where Where your head in the sand. Yeah. 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 Now look at it. He looks like he's a a genius because (laughs) there's a, everybody's saying it. I mean, the SBA has so much fraud, 10% of all those funds, 60 billion, 75 billion in government money. Look at California. There's yeah. 30 billion in just unemployment frauds. So the last piece, I think that was 2020 is a case study in fraud and what, yeah. what you can learn from it, but relying on certifications, just having people say they're telling you the truth mm. is a horrible way to give out a loan or give out unemployment. Just relying on people's word yeah. at face value, which is what the SBA did, which is mm-hmm. what all these states did is they, oh, you say you're an independent contractor, you're a maid, you were making 60000 a year. Yes, we believe you. Here's your money. Certifications don't work. And I think that was mm. those four things, mountain of money, yeah. a lot of people that were very vulnerable, basically money had to be given away quickly and then rely on certifications overrun. And you're right. Everybody could see it. The early warning signs were there on Telegram. Yeah. Especially some of the like really private groups, which this guy is a part of. They were really, yeah. You and I should talk offline about some of the other conversations that were had with some very prominent organizations that you've written about recently that I've got emails that I don't think anyone wants me to share with the press. And I'm not sharing it with you as a member of the press, just more as a friend that I think too, it was a challenge because I don't think that there were a lot of people in fraud positions or with fraud information or fraud identity theft skills. And I know for me, there was challenges even trying to get a hold of people at the client that hired me because there wasn't really anyone that was owning it, right? There was part-time was the lawyer and then part-time was the customer service and part-time was this. And it was like, can someone please, I'm trying to tell you this is, you need to change this or you need to put this rule in. It's like house on fire. And I'm not hearing back just because there wasn't somebody dedicated. It's not because they didn't care, but they had their full-time jobs too. And in the early days of the pandemic, March, April, May, the government agencies were just hell bent on just get the money out. They don't want to hear any 
fraud, people telling them there's fraud. They don't want to listen to any of it. But then they want to go back in six months and then look at it and go, whoa, no, look at all the fraud we had. Right. Even though it's, <laughs> it was fairly obvious, everybody that has any knowledge of fraud knew it would happen. It yeah. did. And here's the thing. It's happening again. Unemployment fraud is worse now today than it was three months ago. Hmm. It's worse now. If you go to Telegram, if you go look at those leading indicators, yeah, everybody on Telegram is still talking about unemployment fraud. Everybody on Telegram is still talking about SBA. Everybody on Telegram. Look at what the fraudsters are talking about, and that's where the fraud is. Yeah. And it's 100%. Yeah, yeah. And honestly, like on the e-commerce side, a lot of retailers have seen a reduction in fraud because these guys are all going over there. Yeah. There's so much more bang for their buck, so to speak, and they don't have to fence the items. Yeah. It's weird, but it's wait. We're all waiting for the other shoe to drop, but it turns out, no, it's universal. And that's not to say that there aren't some companies that are really getting hit hard, but a lot of them are the companies that are also seeing tremendous sales growth because of the pandemic, delivery apps and loans and that kind of thing. So it really... We'll talk about Telegram. It's like, it's unemployment, SBA, and professional refunding. It's just (laughs) overrun. It's just... I know you're saying this from not just this year and last year, but years before, that to me is just, that's one of the major things. It was an education for me. I didn't know about it. Refunding. Refunding. But now I see it and I'm like, wow, these DoorDash companies, these Instacart, all these companies are getting probably hammered. They may not realize it or maybe they don't care. I don't know. Yeah. I'm just going to keep, I, I, yeah, I'm not going to say anything. (laughs) (laughs) because <laughs> i've had conversations with those brands that you mentioned and sometimes there's underlying issues sure it's that you said that being a fraud manager is half fighting fraud and the other half communicating internally and that can be a real challenge when the rest of the company is really focused on growth or yeah, and or when they're still making a profit they're like yeah we know that all this is happening but we're still making a profit and my concern is what about the brand what about your investors? What about your shareholders if you go public? What about all the other things, the terrorism that you're funding? Your fraud is a cancer. When Mm -hmm. you let the cancer grow unabated, it just gets worse. People tell other people. You have to put up a basic level of defense Mm -hmm. to protect your company, to protect your industry, to protect victims, the consumers. So many of these DoorDash drivers, I don't use a particular company because I don't know, but they end up lose their ability to do DoorDash when somebody claims they didn't receive their food or didn't receive the item. Right. Real losers are the the drivers. It's the people that are victims in that. It's all the rest of us that end up paying huge yeah. delivery fees because you got to cover the cost of fraud. So fraud is uh, it's not a popular thing, and that's why you have to have pretty strong will and stick by your guns and you're at your best when you're fighting when no one else will listen to you, right? Hmm. Yeah, in some ways. In other ways, it's like you're pulling hair out. But yeah, I think that's why you and I both have such a soft spot for fraud fighters because Mm -hmm. we understand that it's sometimes a thankless job, but it's so rewarding in other ways eventually. And obviously, I'm preaching to the choir, you're preaching to the choir. And I think obviously the people that listen to this podcast are also in that choir. So there you go. So in addition to your blog, you are the co-founder of Point Predictive. and. I have not always understood exactly what Point Predictive does. I think I have a general idea, but who are your customers and what do you provide? Yeah, Point Predictive. And thanks for asking. Yeah, Point Predictive is a company I started with my partner, Tim Grace. This is our second company we started. We're an artificial intelligence company. 
We established a data consortium. So we've got the largest auto lending fraud consortium in the country. We're getting about 2 million applications submitted auto loans each and every month. We've got over 10 billion risk attributes, over 94 million applications. And we've got our finger on the pulse of auto lending fraud. And so that's who we sell to primarily as auto lenders. They can join our consortium. You're probably familiar with consortiums in Merchant Side. And yeah. The whole concept is share your data. An aggregated company like Point Predictive can collect that and give you signals when they see something common between one and the other. So we help banks collaborate on fraud. We also serve mortgage lenders. So we do that as well and retail lenders as well. And so we sell to lenders and help fight fraud in those industries which are really prone to first-party fraud. Yeah. Very prone to first-party fraud versus third-party. So Mm. a lot of it is looking for the hidden fraud. So that's what we do. But Looking for the people that are abusing the the system. So they may have gotten a loan at one entity and either defaulted or claimed fraud or whatever, and then they go to another entity to do the same scam. And when they're in your system... You can help yep. that company that they're going to now prevent that loss. That's right. Yeah. It's a great it's a service. Problem. Yeah, we like it. Auto lending is one of the last frontiers of fraud management. Mm. They, they talk about industry that is hugely profitable and was 6% of our US GDP. It wasn't always popular to be a fraud person in auto. If you always think about stories of fraud, how many times have you heard about the shady car dealer? You know? Yeah. It's committed fraud, you know. It's like, right. It's an industry that really needs fraud tools, and so that's Absolutely. occupying a lot of our time. I know? bet, I bet that's really. I mean, it's really fascinating. I think that it's always good to hear about companies that really are serving a need and helping people work together as well. I don't have a lot of visibility into loan fraud, so I'd love to hear what some of the common schemes that are targeting those institutions that are providing fraud. And I know that we have. Some people that are listening from buy now, pay later mm-hmm. companies, as well as consumer lending companies. Yep. So I'm sure they know, but not everybody uh, that listens to this does. And we always like to learn. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So to me, it's interesting because I came from the credit card industry. Yeah. And credit cards all about third party fraud. But if you think about right. auto lending fraud or even mortgage fraud, it's like there's five ways that people will defraud a lender. The first is identity. They'll use a stolen identity. That's about 15% of the cases. The other type is synthetic. People Mm. will create a synthetic identity. And that's a huge problem in auto because it's very easy to create one of these fake identities and get a car that's worth 30,000 and put no money down. That's probably another five, 6% of auto lending fraud. But then there's all these first party fraud. Income fraud is probably the biggest fraud type in auto where you will say you make a lot more than you actually do make so that you can get that upgraded car. So people will lie about their mm, income. Right. People will lie about their employment. So you have to have a good job to get a car because the payments can be very expensive. People will use a fake employer. So there's these companies mm. out there that will sell you pay stubs and they'll sell you access to a phone number where with the bank calls, you'll say you work there and they'll say you make whatever you want so you can get the loan. Wow. Um, so you got identity, synthetic, income, employment. Then you have what's called straw borrower, which is people will stand in and you'll buy a car for somebody who can't qualify. So that's uh, called a straw borrower. Huh, so you'll I didn't stand know the term. in. Yeah, that's another term. And then there's what the last start of fraud is called collateral, meaning that the dealership will 
pump up the value of the car significantly above what it's worth and then get the loan from the lender for that amount um, for far more than it's worth. And then if the loan defaults, the lender's going to be out a lot of money. So it's called, wow. they call it power booking. So they'll go in and they'll say to the lender, the dealer, the car dealer, when you're buying the car, will say, hey, there was nice rims on the car, a moonroof, an upgraded stereo system. So that $18,000 Honda Civic is actually a $24,000 Honda Civic. So give me the loan for $24,000. They'll put the car in the borrower in a much cheaper car and then they'll pocket the difference. And that's. So the- auto dealer is actually pocketing the difference there. Oh, yeah. The auto oh, dealer wow. typically is using Jeez. it. So that's it. It's pretty simple. If they're going to have an auto fraud or even a mortgage fraud, it's going to be the same, but using mm-hmm. a house. It's going to be one of those five types of fraud. And so a lot of that is we call first party fraud. Yeah. So it's really interesting because there's no positive feedback loop. Mm. You can't call the borrower and say, did you lie about your income? Then right. Tell you the truth. So you have to rely a lot on performance of the loan. Mm. Mm-hmm. See how the loan performs if the loan stops paying right after you book it. Like if somebody yeah, goes yeah. in the dealership, gets the car, and never pays, that's probably a fraud. So you got to look at those types of instances. Right. That's loan fraud. Fascinating. You and Marianne, you mentioned Marianne Miller, and I know of her. And actually, we have several people in common that we know, and I really need to meet her because, especially before we recorded, you said that we remind you of each other. So now I have to officially meet her. We've definitely emailed several times, but you've been sharing your fraud predictions for the last several years. And you did that on your blog just in the last month. And I really appreciated that. And I've done fraud predictions as well in the past for cardnotpresent.com. And I know that a lot of care and thought goes into that because you never want to look back a year later and go, I'd love for you to share just a few of them for 2021 and how you see these impacting the greater fraud light landscape. Yeah. So the number one thing, number one prediction is identity theft this year is going to be higher than it's ever been in history. And this is an easy prediction to make because you just look at what happened last year with unemployment fraud. Yeah. I believe there's probably three to five million U.S. adults who this year will discover their victims of identity theft. That happened last year. Yeah. All of these unemployment. Especially when they file taxes. Yeah. When they file taxes, we're going to see three to five million. That's going to easily double, maybe triple identity theft for this year. So Mm -hmm. that's going to create a lot of problems. People are going to start putting credit fees on their bureau. They're going to want credit monitoring. There's going to be a lot of back and forth with banks. It's going to put a big strain on banks. It's going to put a big strain on victims and consumers. And so I think that's going to be the story of the year as we go Mm -hmm. through. The second is and somebody else that I, I met through you is Shannon Slaughter, who's yes. just ace fraud analyst. And I love her post. Me and too. She picked up on this is it used to be credit cards were the hot commodity. It's yeah. not. It's now bank accounts. Yes. People want those bank accounts. They want to get access to Wells Fargo, Chase, Bank of America bank <laughs> accounts so they can funnel in these funds into bank accounts. They need a place to put their unemployment benefits and things right. like that. So those. Bank accounts are worth several hundred dollars. If you go out in the dark web, it might cost you several hundred dollars to get access to a bank account. Credit card is going to be $2. Right. So it just tells you that it's such a hot commodity, Value. these bank accounts. So look for bank accounts to become the next hot commodity. And then the third would be SBA. I think there's going to be another $25 billion in fraud this year. I think paycheck protection is another boon for these fraudsters who know how to manipulate the system. And it isn't hard to get a million dollar loan out of the SBA if you read some of the stories from last year. I don't know if they've solved that, but 
It actually kills me because I actually applied for one several months ago when, you know, business was not doing so well and I got denied. So I'm like, yeah. well, and then the people <laughs> like, oh, but the fraudsters, they get all the money. Like you see all these stories and you're like, how did somebody, what? Like I was truthful and they're like, no, you're good. <laughs> yeah. It makes no sense. And the fact is 60 billion, what I don't know what I estimated it, but you, know, you didn't get it. You needed it. And the fraudsters got it. Yeah. You know, just the most frustrating thing about the program is they know how to lie to right. get around the system. A lot of them didn't just apply once. They applied like six, seven, eight, nine, ten times. Oh, a day. Got, yeah. So they figured it out. They, they figured out the system. Yeah. Yeah. And it ended up being fine, but it was a little bit frustrating. I was like, wait a second. Yeah. Legitimate people can't get their unemployment check because fraudsters mucked up the system. And so people that are in dire need. Yeah. Again, it just goes fraud impacts the vulnerable populations more than anybody need the money. And that's why I like, I love Shannon's posts because I think they are so focused on the vulnerable community because that's, she works for a credit union and she sees a lot yep. of that too. And that was something that when I you know was working with the unemployment agency for one of the states, I really kept in mind. At one point they had some of the National Guard helping them look through manual reviews. And I was like, yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh. And actually, I think I read that in one of your blog posts. And so when I had a call with them, when they were hiring me or engaging me, I said, are you guys really having the National Guard look at the unemployment applications? And they were like, yeah, they just, that was... Yeah. And another frustrating side point is that they spent a great deal of money on a very large consultancy that didn't know anything about fraud. So they were able to pump up all these reports, but didn't actually help them stop the bleeding. And that's extremely frustrating for the small fish that comes behind them when there's barely any budget and is, wait, you guys didn't, they didn't even map out your process end to end of what you're doing to look at risky accounts. What did you pay yeah. them very large sum for? <laughs> Yeah, I think a lot of times that politically these states need to get a big name in, a big yeah. name to say they came in, this big name in. And even though you would really give them something of for greater value for the state to go politically, oh, Carice, but a lot of the non-fraud people would not understand. No, no. Why did you bring in a right. ABC company, the <laughs> right. predominant big? So it's more, I think, Using a consultancy to make it seem this. like they're taking care of the problem yeah. when they actually aren't. Yeah, that's one of the millions of one of the million reasons why I became a consultant. But that's just my own grievance. This is not <laughs> about me, but it was frustrating as someone who was very aware that there were people waiting up to six weeks for their unemployment checks and were really struggling because of all these ones that were having a manual review. And it was tough, definitely for me. I think I realized that I'm so much more comfortable on the e-commerce side or even with banks because it's not as my empathy doesn't get as much when they're stealing high luxury items or something like that versus sure. stealing somebody's livelihood and the way that they take care of their children. That was definitely a challenge for me. So we're going to need to wrap this up, but I just have to ask you my favorite question to ask. And I think everyone's favorite question to listen to and with 30 years experience, I can't imagine how many you have, but I would love to hear one of your favorite fraud stories or something that comes to mind that you were involved in or that you were aware of that was just something that stuck out in your brain. Because we have so many that kind of meld together, but there's always that few that you tell at a dinner party or you tell at a conference or something like that. 
Yeah, I think this happens to a lot of people with fraud is 1995, I was working for a bank and I was an investigator and I would go at the time, what you would do, you get these case files in and you'd have to go and print off the transactions and put them in a case file and then you'd log it somewhere. And one day I went to the printer and I saw, hey, there's a printout and I saw a bunch of Southwest Airline charges. So I looked at that and I said, whose case is this? And I, it was Marilyn, my, one of the other investigators. She said, oh, it looks like it's a card not present case and we're going to charge it back. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And the next day I went and there was another printout. And it was a bunch of Southwest charges and I was another investigator. And I said, what's this case about? And it was the same thing. Hmm. And then over the next week, I started to see all these Southwest.com charges. And I collected all the cases together and I looked at them and I said, something about this seems fishy because every single customer lived outside of California, but all these charges looked like they were happening right in California and right next to the call center. So where we were, I pulled a report, they called it a footprint to show you who was touching it. And what I discovered is the same customer service rep had touched every single loan prior to all of these fraud happening. So I brought it to my manager and my manager says, hey, we'll investigate a little bit more. This case kept building and building. And they finally said, hey, if you want to go interview this employee, you can interview them and see what's happening. Show them that they've touched all these accounts. Anyway, I ended up interviewing her. It was a young girl. She was 21 years old. It turns out she was recruited by a guy that she met in the neighborhood and he was paying her $25 for every card account. Wow. And he was just using it. He was sending people all over the country on Southwest Airlines. Why it was interesting is because it at that point, they ended up putting me in charge of internal fraud for the bank. And I got to write all these queries and I got mm-hmm. to all these kind of pattern things to find this activity. Within two months, we were finding four to eight internal fraud cases that were buried in wow. the system just by running queries, like turning yeah. fraud. The reason I want to share that story is that tells the story a lot about fraud, which is communicating the ability to put the pieces together and talk to each other and say what's happening because we're all looking at our own little piece of fraud. It may not make sense, but when you put it all together, all of a sudden there's a story there. Yeah. And then when you get that story, then you can do things systematically. And that's what we did is we said, okay, now that we've got the story together, let's put together some rules and a system and find it automatically. And it just seemed like for me, that was real formative because it showed me the value of understanding very basically what's happening from an investigative standpoint and then putting it right back into the front end. So that was my favorite. If I've ever done anything in fraud that's been my favorite, it's been internal fraud. Really? Yeah, absolutely. Why? Just, just the instant rush. Just when you, I don't know if you've ever seen this, but when you see, and a lot of people get this, but if you're really into fraud and you see a fraud in action, mm-hmm. your hair, just, every... I call it the fraud high. Yeah. The fraud high. You just go into this, like, accelerate it. And yep. so when I would see in a, when I would see an internal fraud happening, I would just go into overdrive and it was just felt great to find it. There's no fraud more damaging to an organization than an internal fraud. There's nothing that breaches trust than somebody in your organization doing it. And so I was felt like that's the pinnacle of fraud is if you're helping your company stops an insider. So that's why I liked it. I just felt like it was rewarding. Awesome. Rewarding and also very sad because 99% of the time when I'd interview the employee, they were upset about it. I felt horrible that they 
put themselves in the position. Mm. They typically got arrested. Literally after interviews, the police were coming in and putting them in handcuffs and taking them out of the building. That part I think would be really hard for me. I am such an empath. That's why I was a little surprised you said that you really enjoyed internal fraud. I I understand that because they have the keys of the kingdom and they can do a lot of damage to the company. But I think that part would be really hard. That was was the really hard part. But I'll tell you, there are some people that love that part, by the way, Uh, there are people in loss prevention or slap the handcuffs on them. But I, I've been so used to having a computer between me and the bad guys that. (laughs) Yeah. And I, I think what it did and what we saw the immediate reaction when you arrest somebody in an internal fraud, your internal fraud rate immediately drops down. So you get this buffer period where people are aware that they can't do it. And mm-hmm. so it's actually preventative. Preventative, yeah. The whole reason we did it. I right. didn't know join it. I hated it. I didn't want them ever to really do it, but it was part of the company policy. But it was just one of the things, but I just, I loved stopping. It's an interesting story though. Yeah, because you're right. It does tell the story of seeing these pieces and then thinking, what's the story behind this? And then sometimes yeah. you have to ask someone else and other times you have to dig into some data and look into it. But I think that's what we, we all enjoy the diagnostics part of oh, yeah. determining what's going on. Yep. That's the fun of it. Frank, you have had a long day and I really appreciate you hopping on and, yeah, and speaking fun. with me. Yeah. You're welcome back anytime. And thank you so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Carice. again to Sardine for sponsoring this episode of Fraudology and for supporting information sharing and collaboration across the fraud fighter ecosystem. You can learn more about the team and their mission at Sardine via the link in today's episode description.